Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. This is part two of our Weird Predictions of Yesteryear episode. I'm Ben, and you know what? I already need to correct myself. Uh, Noel, I don't think all of those predictions were all that weird. Some of them were pretty accurate. What do you say? Some of them were pretty accurate, Ben. Some of them were pretty, you know, cogent in terms of like within the realm of possibility. Um, we kind of reserved some of the more bizarro ones for this episode, I would say. Episode one was mainly concerned with farming and sustenance and food trends. And and maybe, you know, again, a lot of these people that are making these predictions, they're big brainiac types. And so they like to speak with authority. There's nothing less uh, attractive than like hedging on a future prediction because you, you have to say it with utter authority or else you might as well just not say it at all. Um, so I would say everything that was in episode one, uh, even if it hasn't come to pass, like the underwater kelp fields, you know, I, I could see that a world where maybe there's something like that, or certainly there are, are like tanks, you know, that uh, we, where you grow like hydroponically and things like that. So there's versions of a lot of those things. Today we're getting into like weird, wild stuff, as John. Carson would say. And we're going to start uh, in the underwater realm. Um, and but but mainly focusing on transportation. But we're gonna stick stick with underwater for a while. Uh, first off, in the 21st century, it was predicted by uh, the French artist Jean-Marc Cote. Cote case? Cote. Jean-Marc Cote. Ah, Casey on the case. Da-da. French artist, uh, I would argue surrealist artist, based on what you're about to hear, Jean-Marc Cote, uh, and many of his contemporaries um, in the art world uh, produced over 100 of these illustrations of what the year 2000, in the year 2000, apparently we will ride on giant seahorses. Yeah, and... uh 
I I love the idea. I love art. I love futurism. Uh, giant seahorses would have to be genetically created. They don't exist at this time. Uh, by the way, that's super producer Casey Pagram. Nor is our Casey on the case there. Uh, they didn't stop there. They had something that might even be a little bit a little bit more plausible, which is the idea of a whale pulling an entire kind of underwater bus of people through the sea and whales do exist whales are quite intelligent so maybe we could uh convince some whales to help people uh there's there's another shot where there's like a fish race picture a horse race but instead of horses the the jockeys are these scuba divers on these enormous fish uh there are enormous fish we just don't know of any that are super down with being ridden like uh, race animals. There's also a super weird one that's almost like reverse fishing, where they're these like underwater, like helmet frogmen type figures uh, fishing for seagulls. Uh, they are underwater already, and they have like uh, presumably fish bait or some sort of seagull bait, I guess, in this scenario, on strings that they're bobbing up to the top of the water. And then when the seagulls dive in to get it, they like jerk the seagulls underwater. Mm. What would you want with a seagull? It's bad luck to kill a seabird. Everybody knows that who's seen mm. the uh, the lighthouse, but also they're notoriously gamey and stringy and gross to eat. Yeah, it's more of like a, a flex or a revenge thing, I think, because seagulls are some of the most cantankerous of birds up there with the shoebill. Uh, they're some of the only birds I don't particularly care for. Well, you know my position, but Ben, you are a friend of of, of birds in general, and you're right. I've, I think I've mentioned that the seagull might actually be the origin of my fear of birds. Right. Uh, as a small child, I believe I was dive-bombed by them. But then you get into some more, like, kind of, some of these, I think, are, like, they're really styling. I do want to point out these all come from uh what I was going to say is these all come from the public domain review. Yes. I think this is an excellent resource. Mm -hmm. If you're on Twitter or something like that, uh, follow them. They have the greatest stories all the time. But uh, Noel, you want to describe some of these art pieces here? Absolutely. And, and you can find this specifically at publicdomainreview.org slash collections slash all separated by dashes, a 19th century vision of the year 2000 in numbers separated by dashes. We need to start doing show notes for this show, maybe. We can uh, um, talk about that. New year, new year, new new way of doing things. But um, some of these, I think, are kind of styling, where they're like, I don't know that these artists necessarily believe that in the future we would be riding on giant seahorses underwater. Um, I think it might have been just kind of like artistic license for like, ooh, what would be the craziest thing that could happen in the year 2000? Some of them are more functional, though. You've got one where it's like a gentleman running an entire farm remotely from like what looks sort of like a railway switching panel or like a old school elevator where he's got like a ch -ch kind of like lever and then like a series of buttons mm -hmm. on this panel, all connected to these like power line looking things that are connected to threshers that are running on these lines that are using them to like guide their path to like cut the wheat. There are like wheat kind of bales or maybe it's honeycomb or something. But the idea is I think that these lines are remotely running all these threshers and that one man can do all this work himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and you got, then you got Ben, I think something that's the most uh, prevalent here is lots of depictions of flying machines. Yes. Uh, I, I do want to, I do want to pause though, before we go on there, there's one that really stood out to me. It's a classroom scene. Uh, you can see it here on, on the side. I know you can see it in Tunnel, uh, where there's someone who looks like an older schoolmaster 
who's feeding books into what looks to be a crank-operated shredder. Mm-hmm. And then these electric these electric wires lead to these yes. headphones and skull yes. caps, and there are students just sitting there with their hands folded on their desk. That technology symbolically, I would argue, is already around in the form of audiobooks and, dare we say it, podcasts. Right. Uh, so I, I, I feel like that one's accurate, but uh, through the lens of arts. What happens to the books, though, Ben? Do you lose the books? It looks like the books would be, like, shredded into pulp and then converted into some kind of electronic signal that can then shoot through these wires. It's a very interesting image with this one poor little boy cranking the crank while the schoolmaster just shoves the books into this uh, kind of, like, feeder. He's a human turnspit dog. Exactly. Uh, uh, So, yes, so this art is well worth your time if you're a fan of uh, this kind of fanciful view of the future stuff. But you're right, Noel. People are fascinated with air travel at this time. We have to remember that the first flight of the Wright brothers took place uh, December 17th, 1903. And... During this time and leading up to this, people were obsessed with the idea that we would one day take to the air. Uh, I think it was 1913, the first commercial flight occurs uh, from Florida to Tampa. It carries one person. Mm-hmm. It was like the level of uh, it was the level of flex that you would associate with billionaires traveling to the outer reaches of gravity just for like a few seconds nowadays. That's exactly right, Ben. And and the thing that's so remarkable about some of these, so many of these images, all of these in this collection, is that they just have that kind of Jules Verne, you know, like like retro steampunk. I don't know if that's right, but it's kind of this retro futuristic quality to them where there's a lot of like flying suits where there'll be a man kind of in like a winged suit, you know, up there soaring right next to the, to the Zeppelin or, or like, you know, biplane situation. But most of them are odd kind of styles on that. Like there's one that looks sort of like, like a hot air balloon basket that has like a helicopter propeller on the top and sort of this like arrow looking ballast thing on either side. Um, then you have people in winged suits flying up to an eagle's nest, presumably robbing them of their eggs or poaching them or something like that. It's a little weird. Uh, and then you've got like ones that we've seen in movies like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, this like image of the future uh, with a lot of these machines that logistically don't really make any sense. Like there's one where the wings on the flying machine actually flap. And and have and has a tail. I don't think that would work. I don't think that's the way aerodynamics quite functions. But so you got a lot of like dubious science and a lot of style over function here. Um, and then you've got like a blimp situation. We know the fascination of, uh, of of about blimps and zeppelins. You know, when it comes to thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these illustrations remind me of. Well, I think they possibly inspired uh, one of my favorite books, the Codex Seraphinanius, uh, which is a uh, an illustrated encyclopedia of an imaginary world. I think, uh, Casey, Noel, you guys might have seen it uh, the last time you were over at my house. Uh, did I ever show you guys that one? If not, I'll bring it in. It's, it's nuts. Just check it out. The reason I mention it is because of the fanciful illustrations. Uh, but these illustrations, these... Oh, gosh, I'm going to do it. These flights of fancy. Do it. <laughs> don't come from. Done. Yeah, don't come from thin air uh, because we know that, like you said, Noel, there was this rich cultural soil from which they sprang in the zeitgeist. Uh, people were 
honestly predicting that we would, by this time in human history, that we would all have personal airplanes. And full disclosure, folks, some people do have personal airplanes. Uh, your faithful, ridiculous historians here, however, uh, we do not. I think Le Bouche may have uh, maybe a small prop plane somewhere in France. But Casey, that's that's more for uh, your off-the-grid work stuff, right? That's true. I, I was just going to jump in to say, I it took me a second to uh, to recall the book, but the Codex is really, really worth investigating. It's a really, really cool book. The illustrations are amazing. And um, it's just one of those one-of-a-kind, bizarre objects in the world. It's really, really cool. It makes no sense either. You know, it's uh, it's all, it's from 1981, but I, I think he was inspired by a lot of the art that we're discussing in the opening of today's episode. And it's funny, you know, the, the stuff about personal airplanes uh, dates back to, what, no, 1930, Frederick Edwin Smith published this book called The World in 2030 A.D. <laughs> and he said, everybody's going to own a small airplane. It's going to be perfect for weekend trips. You know, you can go to Greenland and ski, and then you can come back. And yeah. I, I don't know. It's so well, weird. I, I will say this. I mean, you know, I, I think the closest thing we have to, like, personal crafts like that would be the helicopter, which is obviously, you know, still within only within the realm of, like, you know, super, super high-level uh, wealth. Um, because we were talking off-air it would be very difficult to to like logistically deal with like the the traffic of like everyone having an airplane and just like air traffic as as difficult as it already is for commercial flights can you imagine like having everyone like have a, an aircraft and then how would you deal with that you'd have to communicate with some sort of air traffic control or like have really really good radar or, i don't know what do you guys think what would be what would life be like? I feel like there would be just crashes, like just wreckage falling out of the sky left and right on the daily. Mm. This is a longstanding, uh, I won't call it an argument. We'll call it a healthy conversation I had with my, uh, my, my old ride or die, Scott Benjamin, on our show Car Stuff. Flying cars are one of those things that are always eternally just on the horizon. The only way they could happen safely is if they are autonomous vehicles controlled by a grid. That's the only way it can happen. Otherwise, flying cars are still one of those things where it's a matter of, um, how's the best way to say it? It's amazing if I have a flying car, says one person, and no one else does. But it's a bloodbath if everybody has a flying car. It just, we don't have the skills as human operators to live in a world of uh, personal flight machines in a safe way, unless we have a huge jump in technology or unless they're autonomous. I, and I say that as someone who does think the idea is really cool, but even if you gave everybody on the planet their own personal bicycle, we would still see tons of accidents. Uh, we're just not ready for individual flying cars unless they're robot controlled. That's right. You made the really good point off air, Ben, when we were talking about autonomous cars and how that's sort of becoming less of a priority. I think, what mm. did we say? Uber is out. Yeah. And you made the really great point that autonomous vehicles only works if it's 100% opt-in. Like, when you have any level of human error involved in the equation, it screws up the whole algorithm and makes the whole thing dangerous. So it's kind of an all-or-nothing situation, right? Yeah, that's true. Like, imagine a line of dominoes 
or whatever pattern of dominoes you want to imagine. And each of those dominoes is an autonomous vehicle, except for one. And the one domino is uh, not controlled by the, the falling of the other dominoes. So when it is supposed to move with the system, it just doesn't. The system automatically breaks because of that one domino. That's a very uh, lazy way to put it. But we're working live here, Noel. We're working live. Also, unrelated to anything, did you see that meme? I didn't realize this, but the original Mad Max takes place this year. Oh, no. Uh, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're, we're not too, we're too far there. off. Um, yeah, man, this is really interesting stuff. And, um, you know, I think one thing that we have seen over time, we know this to be true. We always talk about how life expectancy back in the, you know, olden days of life on the prairies or, you know, in uh, the medieval times, life expectancy was not good. Uh, and that was because, you know, there were plagues and there was really bad ideas when it came to medicine and treating illnesses and things that would actually make you get sick sicker and very, uh, you know, poor conditions when it came to childbirthing and your chances of living through bearing children were, were super low. Um, so as we've seen technology progress and, you know, humanity move forward, people's life expectancies have seemed to, to jump. Um, but one thing that was predicted because of technology and this very thing in the 21st century was that we would live to be old, like really old, mm. like really, really old. People have been thinking about this for centuries. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, the one and only Benny F., had even written about this as far back as the late 1700s. In 1788, he wrote a letter to Reverend John Lathrop where he said, you know, within a few years, we're going to live as long as those people from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis. We're going to be like Noah. We'll be 950 years old. Who is that super old one? Methuselah? That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 969 years old. I think Methuselah made it. And we can go into where that comes from. Maybe on stuff they don't want you to know. Check out that show. But the weird thing is, just like the pattern we established in part one of our predictions episode, the weird thing here is that it's an extreme claim, an extreme prediction, but it appears to have some degree of accuracy. People are living longer. People are healthier for longer in many parts of the world. And if you look at the science on the horizon, the, the medical research on the horizon, then we may be able to extend people's lives. Currently, we can't extend someone's organic life to almost a thousand years, but we may be able to, I don't, it depends. We, we're waxing philosophical when we get to this part, but we may be able to extend someone's life uh, indefinitely by making a copy of their mind on a, on a digital platform, like, right? Like, turning their mind into code and then keeping that mind on a hard drive somewhere or in a cloud. That's, that'll probably happen before we can get to 900 years old and still be hale and hearty. But, you know, I, I've, always, I've always been interested in this. This is a question for you guys. Given the option, would you want to live for 900 plus years? Uh, let's say, let's not make it a monkey's paw situation. Uh, would you want to live for 900 plus years if you knew you would be relatively healthy until, say, like the last five years? 
It's a hard one, man, because, you know, you might say it when you're young, but then realize that you just get bored and you just, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's like the, it is a monkey's paw situation or it's, uh, you know, a devil's bargain. You think Ooh. of like the like interview with the vampire and all these characters that kind of live to see all their friends die. And like, I, I don't know, maybe if I knew that everyone that I loved was also going to live that long then I'd be cool with it. But I wouldn't want to like outlive everybody in my life and, and then be sad and alone living in some sort of like virtual reality brain cloud machine. Yeah. What if you could do it physically? I mean, I'll tell you, I would immediately go to space and I would be like, all right, I got 950 years, but to spend the first 250 traveling out somewhere, I'm just going to turn around and come back. It sort of makes me think of a, the the concept behind this really cool Philip K. Dick book called Ubik or mm -hmm. Ubik, maybe. Uh, it's the idea where people are able to actually die. Uh, and through this corporation, um, their bodies are kept in cryostate uh, and their minds are like put into this cloud type scenario. So they're mm -hmm. able to kind of like their souls are able to live on uh, even if their bodies have actually or their brains have, have died. I'm, I'm not remembering it very uh, precisely, but it, mm -hmm. it is again, a lot of these ideas, it makes sense that they're coming from these science fiction writers or people like that because so much of science fiction is just like thought experiments about mm -hmm. like, ooh, what if like we progressed as a society, just this one little thing a little further than is within our grasp right now, how would that change our interactions with each other and with society in general? And I think that's why people still love science fiction to this day. Yeah, yeah. And also along that vein, if you enjoy the Philip K. Dick story that uh, Noel just recommended, I, I think you'll also enjoy Fall or Dodge in Hell by Neil Stevenson, which has a very similar kind of thing. The only catch is and this isn't a spoiler, but the only catch is the virtual world in Fall or Dodge in Hell is, uh, for some reason, a medieval fantasy world. So if you like Neil Stevenson, he's weird. If you like Neil Stevenson, you haven't read him yet, check that out. I read one of his in audiobook form that I can't remember the name. It was about, it was about like a, a lot of things. Um, it was about like a, a, like gold farming in Dungeons and Dragons or in like, um, uh, what's that game? That online game, World of Warcraft, uh -huh. where you can literally like gold, like farm for gold and then sell it for real money. Remdy. Um, Remdy. Remdy. Yeah. It's about like a, like a, some sort of worm. Um, uh, what do you call it? Like a invasive piece of, um, malware. Um, and like a heist, like an online heist of all this, like, you know, farmed gold and espionage and he's just he's really all over the place and really really interesting and i believe he wrote snow crash as well if i'm not mistaken yeah he wrote snow crash he wrote anathema which is a book i i dearly love uh but yes neil stevenson is another iteration or his work is another iteration of this larger pattern that you just outlined Noel, of, of science fiction through thought experimentation exploring uh the possibilities of the future world this episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. 
That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And now that we're talking sci-fi, we can go to another very sensitive topic. Uh, spoiler alert, you, you don't have to be a fan of history to realize this. People, since people existed, have always been talking about the weather. We used to have entire like religious things built along the, the passage of the seasons and the weather, and we still to a degree do. One of the things that people predicted back in the early 1900s is that one day, perhaps in the coming century, we would be able to control the weather specifically to make rain. On January 6th, 1910, Iowa's Cedar Rapids Evening Gazette came, came out with this article that said, yes, we are one day going to be able to control rain. In the 21st century, they said, we will be the um, masters of moisture. I, mm. I just made that up. They would have written good. it much better, uh, a much better phrase. But that turned out to actually be sort of true, which is amazing. Well, I mean, we've talked about this before, mm. and, and, and whether we can call it actually weather control or not is maybe debatable, but the right. idea of cloud seeding, right? Like mm -hmm. where you can pump stuff up into clouds using, what is it? Like uh, iodine, so some kind of like chemical that you can use. Um, and you can make it rain, but that doesn't mean that you can make it not rain. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like right. they're, they're, you can't really control it if you can only work it one way. But but you also do you really see that used during drought? I mean, we still obviously have terrible droughts. We haven't cracked the code on how to like not have droughts. So obviously this cloud seeding thing will only get you so far, right? 
Yeah, see, that's the problem. The concept of cloud seeding has been around for a uh, for a while now. Uh, it wasn't around 1910, but it, it came. It, it's been around for decades at this point. Uh, silver iodide particles are injected into clouds. Yeah, and the the problem is, uh, it's a drink your milkshake situation to a degree, because th- that cloud seeding does not create water. It gathers water to these clouds, and then that Mm -hmm. water becomes rain. So you're taking that water from somewhere. Uh, The government of China, just a few weeks ago in December of 2020, they announced that they're going to expand their weather modification program to get this cover 2.1 million square miles. That's more than one and a half times the size of India. So where's that water coming from? They're they're using it to combat drought, but... um, but I love your point. I think you make a fantastic point. We know how to start the process, but it's it's maybe a little optimistic to say we know how to control it, right? That's right. Ben, didn't China use cloud seeding as like a kind of special effect during the Olympics to like do some kind of crazy display uh, during the opening ceremonies? Yeah, yeah, I think you're correct. I think you're correct, Noel. Um I didn't personally see it, but it's definitely a flex that is within their uh, weather wheelhouse, wheelhouse of weather. Oh, wheelhouse of weather, W-O-W, like World of Warcraft. Wow, indeed. Uh, Yeah, the headline from Business Insider from 2016 is, uh, China spent millions on a shady project to control the weather ahead of the Beijing Olympics. And and that millions uh, is $30 million. uh, And their version of it involved shooting, quote, salt and mineral-filled bullets into the sky in order to make it rain uh, for the, you know, for entertainment purposes. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're like, like, we're, we're sort of there. I don't know that this is something that like, I mean, surely some, there's some research going into it, but it's not something we hear about a lot. And it certainly doesn't seem to have solved drought or wildfires or like any of the like things that the weather does that totally screw us over as human beings. So I would say this is a no, that we have not figured out how to control the weather, wield it to our, uh, our own purposes yet. Yeah, I am unfortunately tempted to agree, man, because we also see other predictions about weather that are incredibly optimistic because the weather has kind of gone downhill over the past uh, few centuries. There are people who predicted uh, that hurricanes would one day be a thing of the past. In 1950, in Popular Mechanics, a fellow named Waldemar Kampfert uh, said that hurricanes are going to be a non-issue by the year 2000. And his he said they would be a non-issue not because we would prevent them from forming, but because once we saw one over the ocean, we would start a large oil fire across the water, mm. drawing air from the region and, and and somehow ending the hurricane. He also thought we'd be able to divert storms, etc. cetera. Uh, he was incredibly wrong on multiple accounts, uh, but, you know, he, he he was doing his best, I guess. By the way, Tesla also was incorrect with his uh, his predictions about weather. I think he said we would end deforestation and prevent forest fires. 
Smokey the Bear would be disappointed. Mm. Um, but it still is up to you to prevent forest fires because we haven't figured it out like as a collective. So each individual has to do their part. Um, but yeah, so like another funny weather-related one, and this is sort of like in the the stuff uh, kind of category, right? Like what will, what will our stuff be like in the future? Well, um, according to Valdemar Kampfert, in the future, everything in our homes will be waterproof. Another one of these like underwater dwelling kind of future scenarios. Um, he believed that everything in the future, including the drapes, uh, you know, rugs, upholstery on couches, anything, anything you could put your hands on would be made of waterproof plastic. Remember when plastic was like the wave of the future? You know, this seems to be coming from that kind of mentality that everything should be made of plastic because it's the wonder material. If only they they knew uh, about nanoplastics and how it, uh, you know, gives us all cancer. Um, Topic for another day. And that our homes would have like built in drainage systems like in the floor. So after, you know, we would literally be able to hose down everything in our house to clean it off. And then the water would just, you know, bloop, bloop down the drain. And then they like car wash style, there'd be a blast of heated air that would dry everything off. This is uh, this one is absurd. I have to say maybe maybe the most <laughs> we've got, you know, we have a thing like this in bathrooms, in restrooms, in different parts of the world. Like you'll go to a hotel and, or a hostel maybe, and you'll see that the uh, the entire restroom is the shower area have you ever seen those they've got like the the faucet hooks directly into the sink and there's a drain just in the middle of the floor the commode's still there it's just when you want to shower you just hit a switch on the sink and then you take the shower head off the rack yeah yeah also great uh for like a murder room you know, mm, if you yeah. need if you need such, because then everything just drains down the drain and you can rinse it all off and you got a fresh start. Uh, but yeah, this is this is true, Ben. That we do have something like this, but they're all kind of more in the realm of bathrooms. Yeah. Or possibly you might have a drain in a garage situation for like oh, a yeah. car wash, maybe, mm-hmm. or you know, something like that. Like a foot rinsing station if you live by the beach. Yeah. I like that you mentioned I like that you mentioned kill rooms though. That's going to sound weird out of context. We're going somewhere with it <laughs> yeah. uh, because Take I, me there, babe. <laughs> I immediately thought of uh, of the show Dexter. You remember Dexter? Of course, of course. Uh, so Dexter had this uh, this pretty consistent depiction of uh, a kill room on television, and people argue all sorts of things about television and the things depicted upon it. But there were a lot of predictions about the future of television in the 21st century. Imagine. So, like, according to some of these futurists, by this point in history, we should be able to watch a show like Dexter, or let's take another example, watch a show like Hannibal and smell uh, the food cooking or feel the texture of of different, uh, different things depicted on the show. Nicholas Negroponte, who was a former director of MIT's Media Lab, said that we'll have full-color, large-scale, holographic television with force feedback and olfactory output by the 21st century, meaning that you could see stuff on television and you would feel it and you would smell it. Uh, here's the thing, man. I don't know if I want that. Mm-mm. No. 
And honestly, I think attempts to do stuff like this, which is still around, I, I think I think 3D uh, cinema is is a gimmick and it hurts my eyeballs and it makes me kind of want to recoil in horror. I don't really care for it. And I went and saw a movie with my daughter and her friends. It was an anime. And there's this like, I don't know, they call it 4D theater at the the fancy movie theater pre, pre-COVID times where Ooh. the seats actually move around. They kind of jerk you around and there are little spritzers on the side of the seats that like shoot puffs of air at you and there's yeah, like yeah. air stuff happening and even moisture and uh, possibly smells. I don't recall. There were no smells in this one, but um, also at the, uh, the Legoland at uh, one of our uh, malls here, they have a 4D cinema that does involve smells um and it's just so gimmicky and i just don't see it doesn't really integrate into like the experience of it like i get what it is but it doesn't really add anything to it other than like oh this is cute you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i don't know i know there there have been some companies doing research into how to create a smell machine but i yeah i'm with you man i don't i don't know if i really want to want to smell what I'm watching or if I necessarily want that uh, tactile feedback all the time. Uh, And I agree with you. I think a lot of us in the audience today can remember how television manufacturers had this ill-fated push to create 3D at-home televisions, and it was a top-down push, and a lot of people didn't like it. So it's not just a question of whether the technology exists. It's also a question of whether there's a demand for it. So let us know if you are a fan of Smell-O-Vision and why. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Oh, 
right? It's- oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's another question here. I think it's it's one that we'd be remiss if we didn't mention. It's the world of medicine. We know that uh, predictions of future miraculous cures are a tale as old as time. Back in 1956, there was a Swiss doctor named Francois Odi who said that uh, by this time in this century, by the 21st century, all the victories that were the pride of brilliant surgeons will be forgotten, replaced by the discovery of, quote, a substance which, in the form of a capsule, will capture the sources of energy that will bring recovery within hours. So it's just like one miracle pill for everything. What a world. That would be amazing, right? Oof. Yeah, I mean, it would be amazing, sure, but is that not, that's like not how medicine works, right? Right. There's no one pill to cure them all, like Lord of the Rings style. I mean, there's like nuances in each individual patient, each each individual malady. This is very like utopian future sci-fi type stuff, way outside of the realm of just like a, a pill that is like your meal of sustenance. This, I don't know that there's any scenario where this would make any kind of sense, unless it was like made of like nano beings or something that could then just like zoom around inside your body and find the particular part that was ailing you and and fix you up. Yeah. Yeah. The quest for a panacea is, is a long quest and it's one that hasn't, uh, hasn't reached an end point yet. Uh, I think you're right. Noel. if there's something that would be analogous to a pill of this sort, it would have to be some kind of nanotechnology that would be able to diagnose and immediately treat your your body and everything that ails it. And then at that point, you would just need to take it as soon as possible. Take it before you're sick so it could apply preventative treatment. So far, Odie has Odie's prediction has not come to pass, but we still have uh, several years left in the 21st century, to say the least. One of my favorites... This is so weird. One of my favorite concepts, I had not heard of this before, is the concept of the grouch pill. 
Yeah, I mean, let's let's be real. I mean, we certainly have something approaching this uh, in terms of antidepressants, but they wouldn't have thought of it quite as high-mindedly back in 1966. Uh, they were. This was back in, when kelp was really big again, the kind of the health food-driven uh, economy. Um, and they were thinking about how can we improve relations between married couples uh, when one of them is in a particularly nasty mood. Um, and the Rand Corporation, you'll recall, who uh, are the ones that sort of set forth this whole idea of the underwater fields of kelp, as far as the eye can see, tended by frogmen, um, they described a world where you could pop down to the corner drugstore, buy some anti-grouch pills, and slip them into their coffee. <laughs> so that's basically, a, you know, a um, uh, encouraging you to drug your partner, essentially, but we can leave that uh, aside for now. But of course, this is an another kind of like very simplified version of what antidepressants are. They uh, take, uh, they they work differently on different people. They take quite a long time to actually kick in. It's not something you can just dose somebody with and then magically they're happy. I mean, sure, there are drugs like that, but those are called like hard drugs, <laughs> like heroin or cocaine that may make you happy instantly, but then long-term effects of those are addiction and uh, extra grouchiness or worse. Yeah, absolutely. So again, we see there's some real-world things that could be called grouch pills. Uh, but the problem is, as you said, Noel, uh, I think the problem is in the specifics of that prediction. I don't think you should unknowingly drug your partner. Is that is that a hot take? I hope not. I feel like if you have a romantic relationship with someone, it should be founded on trust rather than surreptitiously drugging them. And in that way, I would... I would deem this a less than optimistic prediction about the 21st century. Now, so far, folks, so far, dear ridiculous historians, we have been pretty, uh, pretty honest, but pretty optimistic as well with our predictions. We've been talking about people saying nice things. People weren't always saying nice things. In fact, there were a few less than optimistic, somewhat strange predictions about the 21st century. Uh, Noel, you know, the weirdest one to me is the future humans one. This is where things get pretty interesting. This is like sort of in the realm of like body modification or like, you know, what we evolve to be a certain way. I mean, yeah, there's this idea that seems really strange and dystopian that uh, in the future, humans will only need one eye. Uh, we'll all be cyclopses. Uh, this was put forth by uh, Dr. Thomas Hall Shosted in a 1933 article uh, called The Face of the Future. And he says, the future eye will be in the center of the face below a very high forehead uh, where the bridge of the nose once rested. We won't need, in the where we're going, we won't need noses. That was a Back to the Future reference. Uh, the doctor said that the human eye originally had evolved to see into the distance, but we don't need that anymore because we're not like hunters. You know, we, we, we get our food served to us in pill form. All we need to be able to do is read and write and uh, re repair watches, he says. Uh, also cut gems. These are all very, you know, modern uh, things. Uh, and look at pictures and so forth. Um, and he says the cyclopean eye would evolve to accommodate all these close range tasks and, and, and pastimes. Wow. Jeez. That is, that's a lot. That's a lot. 
That guy's a doctor, too, has a very low opinion of us. I, I don't know how serious that prediction is, but it seems like he's being, he's being sincere, you know? Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of cantankerous stuff about the way new technologies will affect future humans. One Time article from 1951 said that people are becoming less literate due to the rise of television and said that eventually people in the age of television would not be able to read. Uh, specifically, this writer said, by the 21st century, our people doubtless will be squint-eyed, hunchbacked, and fond of the dark. But why am I carrying on like this? Chances are that the grandchildren of the television age won't know how to read this. Tut, tut. What a weird, what a weird diss. So hopefully that's a little bit of satire. Uh, we know that people are encountering literature in different ways, but it's not like literature no longer exists. I know a lot of people who read books. I would say, I would say maybe this writer from the 1950s should uh, consider directing their ire at the rise of the calculator. How many people can easily do sums? When's the last time you had to do some long division? for instance, without tech assistance. A million percent. We've talked about this so often where it's like, do our brains, how do they change based on the information that we no longer need them for? Like, uh, you know, remembering phone numbers or whatever. Like, do they fill that space up with other stuff or do we just kind of lose it? Is it like a use it or lose it situation? I know that, you know, the mind and uh, is, is very elastic and, and has, has a way of adapting to things like that. But uh, it is an interesting um, thought, especially when you think about the extreme kind of evolution that he's describing here, which would presumably take like millions of years, yes. right? To, to yeah. evolve into having a single eye. That's that's not the kind of thing that would happen like in anyone's lifetime. True, true. And I, I think the evolution of humanity is now a conversation with technology, but I don't I don't think television is going to render people illiterate. Uh, maybe it just changes the way we encounter literature. So Let's bring it all the way back around to the very beginning of part one of our predictions episode. Nikola Tesla, he had some really, really nice optimistic predictions too. Um, and I don't want to say they're wrong because I also strive to be optimistic. Uh, but I will say we have what? We have like 80, 80 years to work on these. Right yeah, about 79. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, mm -hmm. what, what what are some of your favorites, man? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, there are a lot. There's, there's so much. We've covered so many weird ones, like pretty close to accurate ones, ones that we're seeing little shades of in our day-to-day -day life. A couple, I want to end on, on Mr. Tesla because he did make a couple of fun ones that actually have come to pass mm -hmm. in very, very real and meaningful ways. Uh, one being the, uh, the whole notion, the concept of a smartphone, or let's just call it a cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, he said in a 1909 interview with the New York Times that was published in Popular Mechanics, quote, uh, it will soon be possible, for instance, for a businessman in New York to dictate instructions and have them appear in type in London uh, or elsewhere. He will be able to call from his desk and talk with any telephone subscriber, he even uses the word subscriber, right. in the world. 
it will only be necessary to carry an inexpensive instrument, no bigger than a watch, which will enable its bearer to hear anywhere on sea or land for distances of thousands of miles. One may listen to or transmit speech or song to the uttermost parts of the world. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, he was he was spot on with this one, which gives us a little hope that maybe he'll be he'll one day be right with his prediction that news headlines won't focus on crime and politics. In 1935, in Liberty Magazine, he said, Today, the most civilized countries of the world spend a maximum of their income on war and a minimum on education. The 21st century will reverse this order. It will be more glorious to fight against ignorance than to die on the field of battle. How amazing would that be? Nick, if you're listening, I hope you're right. I guess he's not familiar with the expression, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, right. We still seem to operate squarely under that principle. Um, so I would say that's a big no. <laughs> but would love to see that happen. It's going to require a whole lot of consensus and a lot of uh, mm. just changing of attitudes, you know? Um, and who knows? I mean, uh, 2020 was a rough year. Um, moving into 2021, it's it, it would be foolish to think that all of a sudden things are going to change for the better overnight. But it does feel like the discourse is maybe moving towards something more representing a consensus or a little bit more. They, what is the word? Uh, lowering the temperature of, of, of discourse and of rhetoric and all of that. So we'll see. Um, I, again, like you said, Ben, I too like to be optimistic. Uh, one thing that Tesla absolutely got right more than 100 years ago that isn't of a particularly, I don't know, it's, it's not net unpositive. There are certainly positive uses for these things, but the idea of unmanned aerial vehicles or what we love to talk about, you know, on stuff they don't want you to know, um, drones, the idea of drone warfare. Um, and Nikolai Tesla actually had a pretty optimistic view of what these devices would accomplish. He uh, said he actually has a patent for something resembling a, a drone. Uh, it, it was a, it's a like a sub whatever, like a ship, like a drone ship. But he believed that radio waves would be able to use be used as communication technology uh, that would transmit messages between like a master and and, and a, a host in this drone, um, and be able to use them to carry out uh, warfare operations. But he referred to them as drone peacekeeping. Yeah, yeah, and he was right. He called it a century ago. He predicted the path we would take. Uh, and as you said, Noel, it is, a, um, it is a path fraught with complications. It could be seen as a net positive. It certainly was seen as a net positive by Tesla. But so he was right about cell phones. He was right about drones. Uh, we're hoping he's right about the emphasis on science over war. And we're also hoping he's right on one of his most optimistic predictions, the idea that a Department of Hygiene would eliminate pollution and world hunger. He said by the year 2035, there would be enough wheat and wheat products. Because remember, from our earlier episode, the guy loved honey, milk, and wheat. Health food nut. Health food nut. Uh, he said there will be enough of this stuff to feed the entire world, including parts of the world that have been chronically on the verge of starvation or experienced food insecurity. And he said long before the next century dawns, Systematic reforestation and the scientific management of natural resources will have made an end of all devastating droughts, forest fires, and floods. 
Oh, and he also predicted uh, that we would be done with the necessity of burning fuel and mm. there would be no such thing as unsafe drinking water. Tesla, we're trying our best, man. We're, let's just say we're running a little late with that one. Yeah, we sure are. I want to uh, circle back to drones just really quickly because, again, I, I sort of briefly mentioned that he thought of these as a method of keeping the peace. And the reason is he felt that his patent for a drone, these unmanned vehicles, would, quote, this is from a, a tweet from Matt Schroyer, um, would bring about world peace through mutually assured destruction uh, in the same way that, like, the H-bomb did. But unfortunately, there's a really good quote uh, from John Oliver from last week tonight, where he says uh, that drones didn't have that same effect because so much of what drones do happen in secret. And uh, you don't have that same spectacle and that same theater and that same shock and awe as you do with a singular event like dropping an H-bomb and seeing an associated mushroom cloud that everyone can like ooh and ah over and uh, experience the, the fear of God, right? Yeah, right. That's the problem. Technology always outpaces legislation. And we are now in a world where um, it's difficult to make solid predictions about so much of the future. One thing we can predict, though, hopefully, is that uh, you have enjoyed this two-part episode. And uh, we predict, I think we can safely predict, that we are uh, going to be making more of these episodes in the future, so long as our super producer, Casey Pegram, sticks with us, as long as we don't get on your nerves too much. Right, Casey? I'm here for the long haul, guys. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> we appreciate it. And we're here for you for the long haul and for you, Ridiculous Historians. So, And you can be there for us or for each other in, in whatever form you see fit, as long as it involves you know, the internet. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, where we're Ridiculous History. Uh, if you would like, you can join our Facebook group, Ridiculous Historians, where you can participate uh, in conversations and engage with your fellow ridiculous historians. And you can also find us as individuals. Uh, you can talk to me directly. I'm on Instagram at Ben Bullen. You can also find me on Twitter at Ben Bullen HSW. Huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram. As always, Alex Williams, who composed this theme. Christopher Hasiotis, here in spirit. Our wonderful research associate, Gabe Luzier. Thanks to you, Gabe. Uh, thanks also to our own mad scientist, Jonathan Strickland. Thanks to Eves Jeffcoat, our peer podcaster, a friend of the show. Do check out her fantastic podcast, This Day in History Class. Yes, please do. Um, and, you know, hope your new year is treating you well. Uh, let us know what the cutoff for calling it a new year is. I would love to know. Why don't we just call it the new year until, like, September? Uh, you know what? I'm cool with that. Way, way in, though. <laughs> we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. 
True story, the intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.